This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, people, we, all of us, we're a fickle bunch, right? We are very hard to please. We say we want something, we get that thing, and then a year later, nah, we've changed our mind. We don't like that thing anymore. I, I, I know it's tough. Sometimes we like to complain about politicians, but I have no doubt politicians also complain about us. Latest example, the Portman Bridge. We're going to talk more about this story coming up with Janet Brown, but essentially it's about the numbers. The Transportation Ministry reports that traffic on the Portman Bridge has increased to about 150,000 vehicles per day. Now, five years ago, in 2014, it was 94,000. Remember, that is when the tolls were on. And we know from looking at the numbers that once those tolls came off in 2017, the numbers went way up. And now people are complaining the bridge is too busy, too much traffic, too many tie-ups. And I think, well, I guess we're never happy because like, what is the solution to that? That's what we're asking for our hot question of the day. Do we need to wait for this new Patola Bridge to be built? Maybe that'll help balance things out. Do we need to re-implement tolls? That one really gets me because people complained nonstop about the tolls. We did it often on this show. And if I hear if this, if that, if that option comes out number one today on this hot question of the day, I I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I'm just so fascinated by today's results. So that's also an option we're giving you. Should we re-implement the tolls? Should we increase transit? I'm a big believer in that one. People have no choice along that stretch but to take their car to work. Or do you say, you know what? Tough it out, people. That's just the way it goes. Those are our four choices for our hot question of the day. You'll find it online at CKNW on Twitter, or you can go to at Simisara980. Cast your vote there. You can use our buzz line too. You can go 604-331-2899 and have your say. And you can email me, simi at cknw.com. Well, today we're talking about commuting, and in particular, the commuting route of the Portman Bridge. If you're one of the people who uses that bridge, and you think, man, traffic is really getting worse, you're not alone, and you're also very right in thinking that. The number of vehicles using that bridge in the last five years has nearly doubled. Total average daily traffic volume across the Portman in 2014 was about 94,000. Last year, 150,000. Remember, the tolls came off in 2017. And at that point, the numbers, of course, started increasing. We are going to talk more about this, the traffic congestion on there, what can be done about it. Joining us now is Janet Brown, Global News Senior Reporter, who dug these numbers out from the Ministry of Transportation. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Simi. And you know, we don't even have the numbers for this year yet. And I'm sure they're going to be much higher than last year, which were at about 150,000, the daily crossing. And, you know, we have, what, a 1,000 or so people, we're told, uh, moving into the Surrey area alone every month. So it's no wonder those numbers are up because, let's face it, Simi, most of the jobs are still on the north side of the Fraser, and a lot of them are downtown Vancouver. And until things change and uh, head offices are relocated, perhaps, into the Surrey area, into Langley, further east, What's going to change? I don't know. And, yeah. uh, you know, even the SkyTrain cars, they're packed too. I uh, talked to Brad Bickham. He is a gentleman who lives in the Fraser Heights neighborhood of Surrey, and he has been going over that Portman Bridge semi for nearly 20 years. Mm-hmm. I don't know where he gets the patience because I did it yesterday. And going from my home in Surrey to our global studios in Burnaby, it took me nearly an hour. 
an hour, and it's only 17 kilometers for yeah. me to drive. I know, it's because actually a short one for you. Just You should just be able to go right across the bridge, and it's right there. Exactly, and you're off at Gillardy, and, you know, Bob's your uncle, but it took me nearly an hour, and it's brutal, and uh, I have no patience. And I was thinking, how do people do this day in and day out in the morning and the afternoon? I, I don't think I could do that every day. And, of course, there is the SkyTrain option, but, you know, it's jam-packed too. But anyways, back to Brad Bickham, who lives yeah. in Surrey and who's doing this commute, has been doing this commute for nearly 20 years. He initially lived in uh, Walnut Grove in Langley. Now he's in Fraser Heights in Surrey. And he says, you know, it is getting worse by the month. And he, he gives us an example. One day recently, Simi, it took him two and a half hours to get into work. It's just crazy. Here's more of what he has to say. Uh, it has been gradually getting worse. It, it was better when the Portman, the new Portman Bridge opened up. Uh, but there has been a significant change in traffic, in my opinion, since the tolls came off the bridge. Give us an example of some of your uh, worst commutes. Up to, up to how long has it taken you to go from Surrey into Vancouver some days? Well, uh, I measure the time from leaving my garage until I get to the garage downtown, and about the worst time I've had is... Uh, was right around two and a half hours. Wow, two and a half hours. Two and a half hours, yes. It was It was a day where, and actually it's becoming more common, where the stop-and-go traffic goes from the east side of the Portman Bridge when you're heading westbound, and it is like that all the way to the Ironworkers Bridge when you're on Highway 1. And uh, there's times where I'll try and leave Highway 1. Part of it is just to see if I can have forward momentum. Uh, but it seems everywhere through the city it's clogged up, whether it's Lougheed Highway or the Barnett Highway or uh, whatever you try to. There's construction, there's backup, and there's people just frustrated. When the tolls were on the bridge, I think it moved a lot quicker. W would you like to see the tolls restored just for that reason alone? <laughs> yes, you know, I would definitely pay a toll to be able to get to work faster. Oh boy, Janet, that is so interesting to me because as you well know, we had you on the show many times when people were complaining about the toll. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, that toll for somebody like Brad Bickham who commutes five days a week, it totaled roughly $2,000 a year, yet he is willing to pay that uh, you know, just to get his commute moving faster. Because I mean, let's face it, there's some people, if they're late for work, Eventually, they're going to be fired, Simi. I mean, th this means a lot to people being able to get to work on time. And also, when employees are late for work, companies lo lose productivity. And, and, and that's one thing that uh, Anita Huberman with the Surrey Board of Trade, the CEO, is, is talking about. She says not only is it, you know, Joe Average commuter, it's also businesses who are also feeling the pain because of this right. massive traffic congestion. Here's what she says.
Well, transportation congestion absolutely affects uh, regional goods movement. Uh, delays in traffic, uh, productivity uh, at the workplace, uh, employees being late, uh, that's a cost to business. And uh, we are waiting uh, for the reconstruction of the new Patello Bridge, which is due to begin in early uh, 2020. But uh, again, we'll be waiting for a little bit before that new bridge is built. We were advocating for six lanes. It's only going to be a four-lane bridge. We need to make sure that we're building transportation infrastructure and we're planning it for the future, not only for today. All right, Dan, that's so interesting because, yeah, we're building it, but it doesn't seem like it's coming fast enough. But also it's being it's like maxed out as soon as we build it. And, you know, here's the other point. Isn't the current Patello Bridge only four-laned? Yeah. And the new one that we're building is also going to be four-laned? So, really, what, what are we gaining? I know it's scary driving the Patello, and the lanes are very narrow, and maybe that's why more people are taking the Portman, too. But at the same time, we're replacing an old bridge with the same number of lanes in a new bridge. I don't know. Is that going to change anything? Is it? And as I say, the SkyTrain transit is, is jammed to the max. Yeah. And here's another interesting point too, Simi. Mr. Bickham decided as an experiment yesterday that he was going to take transit to work and, and see how he got along that way. Right. So he drove from his home in Fraser Heights along the perimeter road, Highway 17, to the Scott Road station. Normally that commute takes 15 or 20 minutes. Yesterday it took him 45 minutes. Oof. He said the traffic, and there were no accidents, the traffic was just sheer volume backed up to under the Portman Bridge. So it took him 45 minutes to drive there. Then he has to park and walk to the station. And then it's a 40-minute ride downtown. And then he has to walk to his office. Well, there he is, nearly two hours to get downtown one way. Right, but then there's and, no options for people, right? Like even with the Portman Bridge, that was one of the big complaints is where were the rapid buses? What kind of transit options are there? And there was a lot of uh, talk about putting uh, more rapid transit over the Newport Man. Yes, there is a bus that goes from uh, a loop in Langley. Uh, but, you know, I remember a long time ago, uh, some of our listeners, and you will remember too, Larry Campbell was the mayor of Vancouver a long time ago. He's a senator now. And he talked at that time of putting rapid transit right down the Portman Bridge, and that was the old bridge yeah. at the time, and right down the median of Highway 1, right out to Abbotsford. And, you know, was that ever discussed, or is that too costly? I don't know. I mean, these are discussions for the experts, for the, the planners, the, the transportation experts. But, you know, I think all these ideas and discussions have to take place because we have to think about moving people better okay. around the region. As I say, a thousand people moving into Surrey every month. And because A, it's more affordable south of the south of the Fraser. It's not affordable, but it's more affordable than the other parts sometimes of yeah. Metro Vancouver. And until as as I say, you know, companies start positioning their head offices and, and companies south of the Fraser in the places like Surrey City Center, etc., really nothing's going to change, is it? No, it doesn't seem like it's going to. Uh, Janet, thank you very much for this. My pleasure, Simi. That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown talking about the Portman traffic, the congestion there, which has increased dramatically over five years. And you know that saying, if they build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come. And they did. You know, there's a lot going on out there in the world. We have a federal election happening. We've got all of this stuff unfolding to the south of us in the United States. Uh, We've got things to talk about, like congestion, 
construction on the Portman Bridge. But you know what the only thing is it feels like that I have heard people talking about over the last couple of days? How cold it is outside. So you know there is a bit of an unusual weather story. That usually means we're going to talk to Mark Madriga. Right? He's joining us now, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. Twice in one week, Mark, we know the weather is unusual. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Unusual. Uh, cold here. I know a lot of people are saying that. I agree. I, I'm hearing that too. And uh, comparing with the rest of the province, it's not nearly as cold. Minus 14 in Clinton this morning. I know Ugh. we have some, yeah, we have some listeners in the Kamloops area. It wasn't that cold there, uh, but um, minus five, minus six, but much colder in the interior. But zero this morning. So our interior listeners are saying, come on, it's zero. Come on, toughen up everybody on the <laughs> South Coast. But it's substantial, as as you mentioned, because it's the second morning in a row we've set a record low at the Vancouver airport. Yesterday morning, it was plus one for a low this morning, zero. And uh, two records in a row. Keep in mind, our records go back to 1937. That's a long period of record. So that is a significant feat to set two in a row for record cold. Yeah. Uh, and also the earliest... now. The official low that I've seen so far this morning is 0.3 above, but it rounds down to zero. Uh, it may come in a little uh, lower than that, but let's just say zero was the low, and that's the first time we've been at zero this early in the season uh, at the airport since 1985, when on October 8th of 85, it was minus one. So that's another substantial part of the story. It's been, uh, what, 19 and 50, 30, 34 years? 34, 34 years. Thank you. 34 years since we've been this cold this early in the season, Simi. Okay, so then that does, if people are thinking we can't remember the last time it was this cold, yep. there's a good reason for that. It's been 35 years. That's right. It's not cold for late November, December, January, February, but it is very cold uh, for this time of year. And uh, as I say, the coldest we've had in a long time this early. Uh, and the other neat thing here. Is that still, a neat thing? Is this even well, a neat thing? Well, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. I tweeted this out this morning. But uh, back in 1985, which was the previous time we were this cold this early, November of 1985, the following month, was uh, the coldest and one of the coldest months of any month on record here in uh, in southern BC. We had something like 10 record lows in a row. So I'm not saying that's going to happen this November, but it's just an interesting uh, side there that uh, this early chill in 1985 was followed by a very cold November. Okay. And so, but on, on other parts of the country, is it as cold? Yeah. I know that Alberta has been really cold, but what's happening everywhere? It's balmy in eastern Canada, out uh, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. It's in the low teens anyway, so it's uh, mostly sunny there, low to mid-teens. But once you hit, uh, well, Winnipeg is the divider, or at least the Manitoba-Ontario border today. Winnipeg's getting snow and mixed rain and snow and gusty north winds and 10 centimeters worth. Uh, they're at zero right now. Uh, Regina, Saskatoon, well below freezing this morning. Calgary's minus three right now, but at least there's some sunshine. So western Canada in the deep freeze right now. And then you go uh, east of the Ontario border, it's a lot milder. Uh, but it will get milder here, too. They will have one more chilly morning tomorrow here in Metro Vancouver with temperatures dropping to zero and frost likely. Uh, sun tomorrow, and then the weekend will cloud over, and that means milder nights and mornings with overnight lows at about 6 to 8 degrees. So we won't have that chill in the air in the mornings, but we trade the uh, the cool mornings in for a lot of cloud cover on the weekend. Okay, so like, would you say an average? than Thanksgiving weekend? 
Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, it, it doesn't look overly wet. There may be a shower or two here in the Vancouver area later Saturday and into Sunday with a lot more cloud, nothing major, no storminess. And then uh, Thanksgiving Monday clears. So a fine mix of sun and cloud on the third day of the weekend. Okay. So then other than that, like this, this is an unusual little bit of cold stretch for this time of year. Right? Yes. Like we don't normally get something like this cold. No, this is very unusual this early in the season to have this cold. There's no doubt about it. Um, but again, we're going to rebound quickly on the weekend and a uh, nice Monday will be followed by plain old rain on Tuesday and Wednesday and temperatures back to th- normal 13 in the afternoons. You know what's going to happen next week, right, Mark? You people are going to go, <laughs> I really liked it last week. It was like sunny, but it was cold and it was nice. Yes, absolutely. They're complaining now, but they'll wish, <laughs> they wish they hadn't. <laughs> you know, what are we, what was the forecast for this fall? Like, weren't we supposed to just have like average temperatures? Yes. Well, average to above average, uh, most of the charts were showing and, you know, there is no El Nino. It's it's neutral. The El Nino, of course, when we have a strong El Nino or moderate to strong, uh, the winter is typically warmer than average, almost always. Um, there's, so there's no El Nino to grasp onto for us to forecast the long term. We rely on the computer charts, and they have various ways of doing it. But, yeah, the idea is um, above average or near average temperatures for this coming fall. And I'll stick with that. This is just a little blip. I still think we'll be... Pretty decent uh, heading into the next few months. We'll get the odd little cold spell, maybe. That's all but, right, uh, then. That's, that's perfectly fine. It's not, it's not like it's in Alberta. Like, right, they're the ones who should be crying. I mean, that's terrible over there. Yes, they are. And, and, you know, I mentioned November 85 that followed October that was cold to start, and that was a record cold November. But, you know, I've seen many years where we get kind of chilly later in October, even a little snow before Halloween, and that's the end of it. We don't get any the rest of the winter. So just because it starts cold early doesn't mean it's going to be a brutal winter. So I'll, I'll stick with our okay. slightly milder than normal winter. That's coming. a good way. That's a good note to end this on. So thank <laughs> okay. you for that, Mark. My pleasure. That is Mark Madriga, our chief meteorologist for Global News. And everybody's been talking about the weather everywhere I went yesterday. I went to my workout. That's all they were talking about there. Come to work. That's all anybody's talking about is how cold it is. So you heard Mark sum it up for us. Like, yes, it is. This is the coldest that we have seen at this this time of year since uh, I think it's 1985, October of 1985. So a long time ago, 34 years. But he said it doesn't mean that that's what the rest of the fall or winter is going to shape up as. And it's only going to last until it sounds like tomorrow by the weekend, we should be getting some uh, regular temperatures. It looks like it warms up Friday is about 14. And that's when the overnight starts to get a little bit warmer too, to about seven degrees. And then next week, you know what, it's going to be like clouds, and some showers. And then we're going to be like, oh, I missed those clear sunny skies from last week. I, for one, love this weather. Well, today we're talking about something on Science with Simi that actually ties into things that we are dealing with right now with our federal election campaign, and that is misinformation. That was a big challenge heading into this too, right? And I can't tell you how many times in the last, you know, three, four weeks uh, in this campaign that I have emailed people back who have sent me stories saying, I can't believe this. And quite clearly, it's it's misinformation. It's it's it wouldn't take very much to figure out that what the link that you just took the time to send me is actually not real news. And so I've emailed people back explaining them, this is why this isn't real, and you might want to check, you know, this, this, and this. So why don't more people do that? Why do we just immediately see something online and think, well, is that, that's, well I can't believe that, or get outraged? It's designed to make us outraged. That's why. 
How are we so gullible to have that happen? So on Science with Simi today, we're going to take a look at this issue. And we're going to turn to the podcast, The Super Awesome Science Show. The host, Jason Tetro, spoke with Gordon Pennycook. He's an assistant professor at the University of Saskatchewan. And he has spent quite a bit of time trying to understand why people tend to believe these made-up stories And he actually came up with a kind of unexpected result in this issue that he has been studying. So let's have a listen to what they talked about. How effective are people at detecting fake news on their own? People can be effective. There's kind of two different ways to answer the question. One is, are people good at doing it when they're on social media? And the answer is evidently not really. When we do our own surveys, like our own actual studies on this kind of stuff, what we do is we kind of take actual fake and false, often, you know, in some cases, just misleading and like partisan content, uh, and then actual, you know, true mainstream kind of media content. Uh, We show it to people and we kind of, we ask them different sorts of questions. If you ask people, would you consider sharing this on social media? People are really poor at discerning between the true and false stuff. Like they only, they only share the true stuff, maybe 5% more than the false stuff. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So if you, that's, which is horrible, like it's very bad. And so like they, you know, truth doesn't really rate that well when you're asked about sharing. But if you ask people directly about, do you think this is accurate? They're really good at it, actually. Like they, There's probably like a 50% or in some cases a bit larger difference between true and false news. In fact, people, the average kind of uh, proportion of like headlines that we show people that people are willing to share is higher than the proportion that people say is accurate, which means like some people are sharing fake news headlines that if they were to think about it, they would know is inaccurate, but they just don't think about it when they're sharing it, right? So people can do it, but they just kind of don't, partly because when you think about sharing things on social media, accuracy is just not the first thing that people often think about, unfortunately. They think about, well, people like this, or what does it say about me, all that kind of stuff. So that's what, that's what it spreads, I think. It almost sounds like you're saying people are just lazy. Is that really the case? Yeah, I mean, they're lazy in a way, which is certainly we're lazy. Like our brains are set up to be that way, which another way to say it is it's efficient, right? Like if if I every time I ask you what your name is, if you had to stop and think about it, then that would be a really inefficient way. There's reasons that we have kind of automatic answers. The problem is that, you know, we use social media as an entertainment source. And so people kind of shut off their brains. Uh, but when it comes to like, there's things on there that we have to think about, such as actual news content. We're just not in the right mode to do that. We're lazy, but in many cases, it's efficient. In this case, it's just one of these many cases that psychologists have found where uh, our brain is smart in many cases, but if you take it to a weird context, then it doesn't do what you want it to do, basically. And your research essentially is saying this. Yeah, that's right. Our evidence is plainly consistent with this. We have really good evidence like so far. And every study that we've run, we get pretty similar results uh, for that. You know, People are, for example, when they're sharing content, they share things that are more partisan. But if you ask them about accuracy, then they, you know, it's more about whether it's true or false, not whether it's consistent or inconsistent with their political ideology. So uh, it depends on what questions you ask people. But the social media sharing, the way that people kind of think about that is not the way that they should think about it, unfortunately. But I think motivation would play a role, wouldn't you? I mean, we've seen studies that suggest partisan perception can lead a person to find the news that they want to believe and then share it. How, How does laziness fit into that? The, the reason why people believe fake news that's consistent with political ideology is because it seems more intuitively plausible to them. And so that's just a function of lazy thinking, right? It's just those are the things that catch their attention and that seem true. And unless they stop and think about it, they'll just go ahead and you know share it or believe it or whatever. But if you stop and think about things, whether or not it's consistent or inconsistent with the political ideology, you'll be better able to recognize fake news. And so what that means is politics is important, but we can trump 
we can override those effects if we just think about things a little bit more, at least to some extent. Nicely said. And yeah. let me get this straight. You essentially are saying that confirmation bias really is a form of laziness. You just want something to be true. You read it. It seems to match. You're going to share it. That's right. So, so the way that politics and these things tend to work on our beliefs is through kind of the power of intuition and emotions, right? That is, they, they grab your attention and what it would actually, it's kind of more like you might call it motivated unreasoning. Like they give you reasons not to spend time thinking about something because it seems like it's so evidently true. So it can shut off our brains. But if we turn them back on, we can still kind of override that. So it's still, we can, uh, in many cases, you know, intuition is really powerful. In the context of like political partisanship, it's, it's probably going to hurt us, especially in the context of misleading like misinformation. So we, so we need to think more about things, uh, definitely. How do we get people to think more? I mean, <laughs> this seems to be the eternal question. Yeah, Is well, there yeah. any way you that can figure we... that out? Then you can collect your Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, in your research, did you find any ways that we could convince people to actually think, use their brains, as opposed to just simply, as you say, being intuitive? So the in the context of getting people to think more about things when they're sharing content on social media, we did something really simple and it actually works pretty well, which is just basically remind people that accuracy is important. <laughs> and one example what we did is we gave people a single, just like politically neutral headline at the start of the study. And we said, we're interested in this for like a different study. Just like give us your opinion whether you think this is accurate or not. Okay, so they just rate the accuracy of one headline. And then we say, okay, now we're just interested we're going to give you a bunch of different headlines. We're just curious whether you would share them on social media. And what happens is if you ask people about the accuracy of the headline, they'll share less false news content. But if you ask them about like how funny is the headline or if you just don't give them headline at all, then they share more, right? So you can just kind of trigger people to think about accuracy and that decreases the sharing of fake news. Because they basically like, like I said before, because when people are sharing things, they don't think about accuracy. If we just get them to think about it a little bit, then that actually has an impact. Uh, we also did a version of this experiment on Twitter where we, through a lot of different steps, sent people direct messages with just like little reminders about accuracy, which everybody, of course, ignored. But it still had an impact on the like quality of the news content that people subsequently shared in like the next day. So if you just getting people to think about accuracy a little bit will seems to improve their capacity to to um, use that information to actually like improve what they're sharing on social media. So that's one thing. But it's just on a gigantic effect but it's in in our world that's getting anything to work is pretty remarkable i think so really when it comes to fake news it's always back to the golden rule look before you leap uh but think before you leap for two you know that's the first step getting people to first like just question is this true is is the, the most important thing to kind of get across so that is coming up on the Super Awesome Science Show. That was host Jason Tetro speaking with a man named Gordon Pennycook, who is an assistant professor at the University of Saskatchewan and has studied the issue of why it is that we are so susceptible to misinformation on the internet. Let's update you on this whole legislature spending scandal situation. It was pretty fiery question period at the legislature today. So at issue was a story that we touched on yesterday, that Premier John Horgan's chief of staff, Jeff Meggs, uh, shredded a document that had been brought to the premier's office in relation to the legislature scandal. Their argument is that it was a copy. It wasn't an original document. They had told the person to go to the police. Uh, they weren't part of the investigation, wasn't needed. They shredded it. Uh, however, this has been a very hot topic today, as I mentioned. So during question period, BC Liberal MLA Mike DeYoung asked if Premier Horgan would seek Megs's resignation over this issue. 
What the Premier wants uh, to ignore and is going apparently to great pains to deflect attention from is the trend, is the recurring trend that is occurring in his office by his chief of staff to break the rules. Premier's got the document now, he's got the dates. We're looking for an explanation. We're looking for an explanation from the Premier as to why in a situation where his staff identifies the existence of documents, where his staff says they're really important documents, when we ask for the documents, none exist. Why is that and why does his chief of staff persist in conducting business in a way that breaks the law, breaks the rules, and will he replace Mr. Meg with the chief of staff? I know. I know what a lot of you are thinking, right? You're listening to that and going, but didn't Mike DeYoung, wasn't there that time with the other thing? But that's pretty much what got fired back at him by the premier. Since there seems to be a desire to continually smear anyone who stands up, anyone who works for the people of British Columbia who isn't a member of the BC Liberal Party, I'll read a couple of quotes, Honorable Speaker, because that's always uh, edifying for the members here and those that are watching on, at home. Stop these witch hunts. Stop the amateur detective work. This is getting ridiculous. We have to stop this behavior. We're seeing a witch hunt, Honorable Speaker. This is not, this is not the Twitter feed for Donald Trump. It's out of the mouth of the member of opposite, the leader of the official opposition. How can we, Honorable Speaker, how can we be conducting a witch hunt one day and blocking evidence in a crucial investigation the next when they're the same thing? I don't know how that happens, but the gymnastics on the other side, with a 16-year track record of triple deleting, of hiding documents, to, to not accept the answer, I'm Members. happy to look into it, is beyond the pale, Mr. Speaker. I'm happy to look into it. I've heard grade three classrooms that are quieter than that right there. Let's get more on this now with the help of Richard Zussman, our Global News a legislative reporter who joins us. Now, Richard, that aside as well, when we last talked to you, we were also asking about uh, BC Liberal MLA Linda Reed's yeah. role in all of this. Did you get a chance to catch up to her? I did, Simi. Very briefly after question period, she did not have a lot to say. And the reason why Linda Reed is important here is because in the Lepard report, it was clear uh, that she did not take any questions from Lepard. She turned down those interviews instead having her lawyer respond in written submissions. And there are still some key holes here in terms of what Linda Reed, the former speaker, knew about the incident involving loading up alcohol in the back of Craig James's vehicle, which is ultimately the issue that led to Gary Lenz uh, lying to Beverly McLaughlin and part of the uh, Lepard report and ultimately has led to Lenz resigning from right. the legislature. So what Linda Reed said was that she was away at the time Lepard requested the interview. I asked her, well, he was conducting this over a long period of time. Yeah. Could you not have found other time? Well, I was away for various weeks at a time. And so then she moved on to being asked about, you know, why not answer all the questions? She said, my lawyer answered all the questions, uh, to which I asked, well, what did you know about this incident, either firsthand knowledge or what you were told after becoming speaker? And she said, none of this happened uh, on my watch as speaker. And you have to imagine all of this is happening while we are walking with her down the hallway and she is trying to get away from reporters as quickly as possible. Right. At one point, her colleague Vaughn Palmer asked her to stop. She stopped spoke to Vaughn briefly, and then continued walking. So all of this unfolded around 45 seconds to a minute. 
Not a really great way to actually get substantive answers to questions, but that was the decision Linda Reed made. And we still have a lot of questions yeah. around why she couldn't figure out a time to speak to Lepard, why she hasn't spoken to reporters for three days, you know, why immediately after their support, if she has information, she easily could have sent out a statement saying, you know, I see what Lepard report has said. Here's my yeah. side of the story. She's avoided all of that. And so I think there are still a lot of issues around, uh, you know, what her involvement was and what details she could potentially add to where these liquor bottles went and, and why were they put into Craig James's vehicle and all this sort of stuff. We're still wondering about uh, yeah. from the Lepard report. And do you think that is also kind of undermining some of the opposition attacks on this as well? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Simi. And I think a lot of this comes down to hypocrisy. And yes, whenever we talk uh, yes. about stories of government waste and legislature waste, I think the public just sort of sees it as all politicians are corrupt, right? And yeah. so one of the challenges here is sieving through all of it to figure out who did what, when, and clearly this issue is getting under the skin of Premier John Horgan. You and I talked about this yesterday. Right. You could tell in the tone of his voice, he was frustrated answering these questions. Yesterday when Andrew Wilkinson took questions as well, you know, there were a lot of gaps in the story. He wants to say, well, look at Jeff Meggs. He's a bad guy. He never reported this to police. Well, Meggs made it clear that he knew it was reported to police as well. And Lepard also makes it clear in the report that Meggs was a credible witness yeah. and he did everything right. And so, you know, you can't, as John Horgan said in that clip you ran, call it a witch hunt and then say, well, look. You're not cooperating the, the, with the witch hunt. Exactly. Yeah. So it's there's a lot here that is flawed. I think Wilkinson understands that his argument is weakened by the fact that Linda Reed did not speak to yeah. Lepard after being requested. And I asked Wilkinson numerous times about like, you know, is this acceptable? And what he said yesterday ultimately is everyone who's asked uh, to be questioned in these investigations should uh, comply. Should. Except and, his MLAs? Like, what's he prepared to do for an MLA that's not cooperating? Right. It's a great question. and We don't ho know the answer to that yet. And there could be the seismic shift happening within the BC Liberals. I think this is part of the larger picture, Simi, around this party looking for renewal and trying to gain trust again uh, from British Columbians. And I think that will only come when you start right. uh, to remove some of these MLAs uh, that were part of the problems of the past and obviously part of the issues that the legislature has had. You know, this is one of those issues where people have lost trust in the institution yeah. and it would be hard to support a party knowing that someone like Linda Reed, who has some serious trust issues, uh, is still a candidate for. So true. All right, Richard, we'll leave you to it. Thanks so much for the update. Yeah, thanks to me. That's Global News Online legislative reporter Richard Zussman from Victoria giving us that update. Yeah, that's the problem with this particular scandal is, right, there's a little something for everything, for every party to get involved in here. So yeah, uh, many questions still for MLA Linda Reed about, you know what, maybe you were on vacation then, you could have said, I'm happy to talk to you when I'm back. You could have set up a time. There's so many things she could have done to make sure she cooperated, but she did not. So still lots of questions to come on that. So today for the federal election, we're going to be focusing on the issue of the economy. This is one of the big uh, issues that we have been focusing on during this campaign. And there's a couple of different things around this, right? That overall, when you look at the stats, you think, okay, well, unemployment is low. Uh, technically, the economy is still growing. But why does there seem to be this kind of uh, pessimism 
uh, about the economy out there. And that has definitely been the case. So many emails that I have received from people during this whole you know, campaign has to do with their concern about the economy. And consistently, we've seen in the polling that that has been one of the, one of the big, big concerns. And there's also confusion about that. So coming up in the next you know, 10 minutes or so, we're also going to be checking in with Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Polling, so that he can walk us through all of the questions that they asked Canadians and the really interesting picture that they got from across the country when it comes to how people are feeling about the Canadian economy and why it is that we feel like we can't get ahead no matter what we do. Now, we know what it's like here in BC, right? But what's it like in other provinces when it comes to this issue? What about right next door in Alberta? How are they feeling about all of this? Well, they're going through some tough economic times. They've had some cuts to oil production there, which has a huge impact. The growth has been relatively flat and there are big concerns about companies relocating. So we wanted to get a better picture of what's going on with our neighbors next door. So joining us now is Heather Urix-West, a global news reporter in Alberta, to talk more about this issue. Heather, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, this is such a fascinating issue. We wanted to check in with Alberta. How would you describe sort of the state of the Alberta economy right now? Uh, we're adjusting to a very uh, new normal. This is, uh, we're going into five years now of, of a downturn and things are recovering, but uh, it's a slow recovery and, and some call are calling it a jobless recovery because the the jobs just aren't what they used to be. A lot of people are still unemployed or underemployed working what has come to be known as, as survival jobs. Right. Would you say then like in previous times, you know, Alberta's known for kind of being boom and bust, were people just expecting the boom to return? Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. Um, some of it is just that they nobody really expected the downturn to last as long as it has like we're going into to year five um and and yeah people are, are getting uh really frustrated and and we're seeing more and more of people just packing up and leaving especially if this is their background if, if they're you know trained engineers or um you know they're this uh, this is where they've uh, built their career there is opportunity in these industries just not here would you say the opportunity then is moving to other provinces? Yeah, and, and out, outside. Uh, a lot of people going down to Texas. I spoke with one uh, father who, uh, after four years of, of looking for employment as a chemical engineer, he's taken a job in Iraq. So tomorrow he's making the big move over to the Middle East, a really difficult move considering he's leaving three kids behind. But he said, you know, after working these survival jobs in construction the last few years, his, his kids are getting up to university age, he can't uh, afford to wait for things to turn around any longer, and, and he's kind of biting the bullet and, and leaving. Heather, that's so interesting because you would think, wow, chemical engineer, that's a very, obviously, you know, specialized profession. We always hear that those are the kinds of the jobs that are in demand, and yet he couldn't find a job in Alberta? Right now, that market is flooded with people. So many of uh, chemical engineers, geologists lost their jobs uh, in 2014, 2015 when, you know, companies were pulling out, things were scaling way back. And and so there is just a glut of people right now looking for jobs. So if there's a posting, I mean, you're up against dozens and dozens of other yeah. candidates. So, so yeah, a lot of these people are, are having no choice. Um, they're either going back to school, starting from, you know, ground one of, of a new profession, or they're, they're seeking out opportunities elsewhere. And what about the kind of office building situation in Calgary? I remember the Calgary was hit pretty hard five years ago. Is that still the case? 
It is still the case. We still have a really high uh, vacancy rate. Uh, I think the city came out with a recent projection, and and they're expecting that to, to slowly start to fall. The vacancy rate uh, slowly start to fall, but that's based on things like assuming that the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is going to get built, as has been promised. Um, but you know, we we know that's not guaranteed. So there's a lot of uh, people holding their breath, wondering, and and really with this yeah. election things could, could change dramatically as well. So, uh, yeah, people are, are hoping on a recovery. Some people are, are saying that we're not waiting around anymore. But, um, yeah, lots of frustration right. and a lot of feeling, uh, a lot of people saying that they're, they're really feeling ignored by this um, election cycle as well. People, you know, take why, for granted that it's going to be voting conservative. Yeah, well, yeah, they take for granted that it's going to be voting conservative. Right. So we don't see campaign stops. We don't see other parties coming out here, you know, you watch the debate, they bring up pipelines more of a jab, but no one really talks about Alberta's economy and how to turn things around. I spoke with Calgary's mayor for my piece that's airing tonight, and he said that, you know, he'd love to hear a party have some sort of plan to get uh, Alberta's economy back on track because really, you know, this is the engine that that uh, fuels the entire country and you can't balance a federal budget without a um, Alberta economy, economy firing on all cylinders, but he hasn't heard anything from any of the parties, so it's just... You know, feeding uh, so a real sense of alienation out here on top of all the economic struggle. I can yeah. see that, though. You're right, because the polling has showed that's like literally the safest place in the country for the Conservative Party. So has Andrew Scheer made stops out there? Like, is, is I mean, that's yeah, his area. Yeah, we see Andrew Scheer out here, but yeah, the rest of the parties tend to kind of write us off. And, you know, I, I've lived in Alberta most of my life, and, and federal elections have always felt a little bit boring because we just assume that we're all going to vote in a conservative bloc. And so... Yeah. We just sort of wait for the the results to roll in from out east. Yeah, right. we we often feel ignored. I can see that, but then again, I guess for the from the political party perspective, they're thinking, is this a lost cause? Why am I going to go out there? Yeah, exactly. Right. So the interesting thing, I guess, from the BC perspective is too that we look at this and we think Alberta seems to think that although the Trans Mountain Pipeline is going to fix everything, but how can one project fix all of those issues and things that you just talked about there? Absolutely. I mean, it can't fix everything, yeah. but it, 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 you know, it, it's become this kind of symbol of, you know, if this starts get, if this starts going, right. then momentum, right? We'll start seeing more investment. We'll start seeing things kind of turn around. Other areas are seeing a booming oil and gas economy right now, like Texas is, is, is absolutely booming right now. So people see that and think, okay, we just need to get, you know, the, the oil in the ground, the, the pipes flowing and, and things will start to turn around. But you're right, it's not going to fix everything. So much has changed. And, and that's what I'm hearing, too, from, from other people. Like, this is, this is the new normal. We have to get on with it. We have to adapt. You know, people are, are getting into other industries. People are leaving. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, yeah. a bit of a painful transition for, for many people. So interesting. Heather, listen, thanks for your time on this today. Hey, thanks for having me. That is Heather Yurix-West, a global news reporter in Alberta, talking about Alberta election issues. So interesting, right? Because when you look at all the polling, definitely the, probably the safest place in the country is Alberta in terms of it's pretty rock-solid conservative vote. 
So our topic today, when it comes to discussing the federal election, has to do with the Canadian economy. There seems to be well, some confusion, I think pessimism when it comes to the economy. And yet, unemployment numbers are low. The economy is still growing. Why is it that we feel like we can't get ahead? So this is all part of the question, uh, the, the, the larger question dealing with the economy, that pollsters have been asking Canadians about, including Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos uh, Public Affairs, who joins us now to talk more about this particular issue. Hi, Daryl. Hey, Simi. How are you? Well, good. Welcome back to the show. I, this this topic really interests me because there seems to be this disconnect, right, between what the stats are saying versus how people are feeling. Yeah, I always find the really interesting ones are exactly those ones where everybody knows something and then everything else is actually different. It's It's kind of counterintuitive, but there is a story there to tell. Okay. And what did you find when you were asking people about this? Well, Canadians are feeling tepid, I would describe them, I would say, on, on the economy right now. There's a real sense that there's problems on the way. And the difficulty that they have is that the things that they, they look at in terms of the economy versus what people who are more formally responsible for looking at the health of the economy, what they talk about. So, for example, uh, you know, GDP to debt ratios and, and unemployment rates and interest rates and all those kinds of things are interesting stories on, uh, on, uh, on business news. But for the average person, it's not really having any impact. In fact, we tested their awareness of what the levels were for all of those things, and they really didn't know. Oh. Uh, so um, the, uh, uh, what, what this underscores is the fact that really when we talk about ac- economics, it's about what's happening in your home, what's happening to your immediate family, and when you walk out your front door and you turn around 360 degrees and you see with your eyes what's happening there, that's what you think about as the economy. Right, and so you said you tested people on that. So what were some of those results? Oh, so we asked people, the only one, so we tested GDP to uh, debt ratios, and uh, we tested um, uh, whether or not the unemployment rate was at an historic low. All of these things, people, large percentages of the population didn't know. So the only one they did know was that interest rates were low, actually. So they didn't know that the unemployment rate is also at record lows? No. Isn't that interesting then? Because and, and there's you know help wanted signs everywhere, but do people feel like it's still hard to get a job out there? They feel like employment is precarious. Ooh, see now that's different from being able to find a job because they feel like even that's a, even if you have a job, then you don't feel like your position is solid. You don't feel secure, and and that's the thing. I mean, so for example, uh, you know everything is so expensive today. Can I can I find a job that will? and allow me to stay up with the pace of, of, of my expenses growing. And people are saying, no, they can't. So all of these things kind of come together to lead to a, a, a perception of what's going on in the economy where people feel like they're falling behind. Uh, they feel like every year things are more expensive. And they feel that nobody's really listening to them on this, which is why when people go out and say, hey, the unemployment rate is really low, that doesn't seem like a real number to them. And you also ask people on how they feel versus how they f- felt like four years ago. Like, are they better off? What did they say about that? Half and half. So half wow. say that they're better off, half say that they're not. And it almost perfectly follows the fault lines of politics in the country. So if you're voting liberal, you think, you know, it's, it's actually not too bad. If you're voting for conservative, for the conservatives, it's not good at all. And if you're, if you're voting for the NDP, you're somewhere in the middle. How can all of that be happening in one country, Daryl? How can our opinions oh, be a, so different based on who we think we're going to vote for? 
Oh, it's a complicated, beautiful place. It really is. Okay, so you also ask people about whether or not they feel like they can get ahead. What do they say about that? No. Oh. They feel they're falling behind. Every day they feel like they're falling behind even more. And the reason is because they think everything is becoming more expensive. But not only that, which we didn't test in this specifically in the survey, but on the question of home ownership, which is a really big question, obviously, in Vancouver, uh, a big question where I am here today in, in, in Toronto, uh, where people don't feel like that middle-class marker of almost becoming an adult, owning your own house, is achievable for them anymore. And that is a really big disappointment to a whole generation of people who we told, you know, if you go out and you get a really good education and you do all the right things, that these things will come to you. Right. They're not coming to them now. So there's a this sense of disappointment, um, a lack of progress, uh, you know, that Horatio Alger idea that you can pick yourself up by the bootstraps and this generation will do better than the last generation, the next generation will do even better. That's all in question for Canadians now. Daryl, so interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure, Sandy. That's Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, talking about the economy. For more on that story, check out globalnews.ca. Now, last week, you heard the story about the concerns from environmental stewards regarding emaciated grizzly bears in the Knight Inlet area. There were some pictures that we saw of a sow and two cubs that had been taken by a Port McNeil wildlife photographer and a tour guide, Rolf Hicker, that raised alarms from residents who said the bears were likely suffering because of the abysmal Pacific salmon return this year. So CKNW contributor Claire Allen spoke with Ernest Alfred, a representative from, from Swanson Occupation. That's an organization that's working to have open net pens removed from the waters. Alfred and others had made news earlier this month when they decided to feed the bears 500 pink salmon that had been donated from the Atelier Gay Fishery Society on Vancouver Island. So we brought those that 500 uh, pink salmon to to shore uh, and and left it there in the estuary. And within a very short period of time, the the bears had moved in, and to me looked like like a like a dog that you know hasn't eaten properly in a couple of days or so. Or a seagull, which just swallows their food. They don't even taste it. And that, to me, was so sad. And to watch these little cubs, um, grizzly bears, starving right in front of our eyes. And this has been going on. This has been a problem, you know, for a number of years. Like I say, the uh, tourism uh, guides have been saying, you know, they watch these bears from a distance for a long period of time, sometimes up to an hour, and these bears are just staring into the river, waiting and waiting, waiting for these fish to show up, and they're not. Oh, that's so sad, isn't it? That's Ernest Alfred. Now, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has since told Alfred and other environmental stewards to not feed the bears. That will likely lead to more problems and them becoming dependent on that food. But what to do? Like, what's happening there? Well, Dr. Ken McQuiston is a wildlife veterinarian and managing director uh, for the Grouse Mountain Wildlife Refuge. And he was also shocked when he saw those pictures. And he, too, would like to know more about this and get some answers. So he's joining us now. Thank you so much for being here. Well, hi, Cindy. I'm pleased to speak to you. Have you ever seen a situation like that before? You know, I've never seen um, a bear so emaciated that wasn't... uh, otherwise sick from something else if uh, it, it, it's very hard to know if those 
three bears in those pictures are actually starving or whether they're dealing with some other condition. Is there any way for us to find that out? Well, you basically have to get your hands on it. But if there was if there was one bear, that's one thing. There's lots of reasons for bears to become emaciated. The, on a body score of five, those bears would be a one. The ribs are showing, the backbones are showing, the, the hip bones are showing. So they really have virtually no body fat. So if, if one bear was like that, we'd wonder about whether it's sick in some way. But the good news is that there's very few things that make bears sick except for conditions like broken teeth or blockages in the intestine or things like that. So so those are definitely possible. But when you have a mother bear and also the cubs um, looking the same way, either the cubs are still getting some nutrition from the mother from nursing and just aren't, or um, they're all suffering from the same problem. And have we heard of anything kind of in the area? Like, are there other uh, bears that we've heard of this happening? Like, the Pacific Salmon Run wasn't great, but it was, wasn't great in a pretty large area. Well, I haven't heard of other bears uh, emaciated to the degree that those ones are in that picture. I, I, I'd be very interested to know if there are others. And then, and then if there are, then that would point to some common cause. So what can be done here then, Dr. McQuiston? Like, we obviously don't want to see this happen, but how do we prevent this from happening? Well, if we can find out what the cause is, then hopefully we can deal with it. So the, the theory is right now is that uh, the, the, at this time of year when bears are at their hyperphagic state where they're ingesting enormous amounts of calories is that their their calorie supply is, is missing. And um, if it is, uh, and they are for some reason staying waiting for it to show up or not moving somewhere else to go find it, um, then then we need to address uh, the cause of that. Now, that doesn't, doesn't help these bears this year, um, so I'm kind of impressed by the, the efforts of the locals to uh, help the local situation. Yeah, how much, how much fish, do, how much salmon do these bears need to thrive? Well, the bears up at Grouse Mountain right now are consuming about fifty to 60,000 calories a day. Uh, that's the equivalent of about 100 to 120 Big Macs um, uh, a day. And uh, the, and so on average, our, ours are fairly big bears, and they're going to go to sleep for five months, and they need to store up the, the fat to get them through that time. The bears, typically the smaller uh, female bears, they would consume twenty to 30,000, so they're they're still eating the equivalent of sixty uh, hamburgers a day, so they're and they and they're looking for high calorie opportunities. And of course, one of the highest calorie opportunities is is salmon. Right. So if these bears aren't getting salmon, is there anything that can be done to help them before it's time for them to hibernate? Well, um, this gets me in trouble with lots of uh, of the wildlife authorities. Um, I, I'm don't see any reason why you can't put uh, do some supplemental feeding of bears to get them through a hard time. Um, the argument is is that they would become uh, food conditioned and count on it from uh, from human hands and habituated to human presence. But they, there's certainly a way to deliver food to areas without the bears know it's coming from people. Right, and you feel that you could still do that without them becoming dependent on it. That's right. They're very opportunistic. It's just like we feed the. Uh, uh, birds at bird feeders all the time but uh, when the when the seed dries up the bears or the birds fly away and go find another source and bears are like that too they're they're very mobile they can cover tremendous distances they can cover any kind of territory 
they and they're omnivores, and so they have a wide variety of food. They'll, they'll eat insects, and eighty-five percent of their diet is plant material. But at this time of year, they're looking for the high-calorie opportunities. They're going after uh, uh, seeds, and, um, and 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 on the west coast, salmon is a is a major staple that allows the bears to go safely into hibernation. So then, as a way to do this, to place it where they would normally be looking for food. Sure, and and as and as long as you do that in a way that uh, they don't think the dinner bell went, and that then here comes the people, and here comes right. the food, then then you could get it done. So you can strategically put food out that the bears don't associate it with people. Right, but um, here we are. It's like you know, almost middle of October. Are we? Is anybody going to do this in time to save these particular bears? Well, I, I understand there has been an effort to do that, and um, somebody actually came up with 500 salmon that they were able to, or willing to, uh, spread on the shore. So I think that's, uh, from my point of view, commendable. Commendable, but yet the DFO is telling them not to do it. So I guess, there, there are people having to kind of break the rules to do this? Well, you never want to break the rules, but it would be nice if the rule makers could... Uh, 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 relax them under uh, extreme circumstances. Um, the worry, uh, as I say, is that they're worried that these bears will then somehow be effective and become a, a potential danger or nuisance for people in the future as a result of this feeding. Uh, I'm, I would maintain strongly that it's quite possible to accomplish the goal of saving these bears in the short term um, without having that happen. Right. So, is there any effort being made here, Doctor, to 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 do that study of these bears to somehow get a hold of one of these bears to see what's going on? I haven't heard that, but uh, from my perspective, we'd be very interested because it's quite possible that if somebody from uh, uh, that was say to go out and tranquilize a bear, do blood tests, do a physical exam, and do the analysis, might find that there's a there's a surprise uh, answer as to why these bears are, are, are emaciated. It might be something that we haven't even thought of yet. But, but right now we're left to kind of point to the, the most obvious causes that we can think of, which is uh, just simply, a, 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 first off, a lack of food supply. But that, but that needs to be proven. Right. Well, Dr. McQuiston, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. That's Dr. Ken McQuiston, a wildlife veterinarian and managing director for the Grouse Mountain Wildlife Refuge.